Welcome to the Glasgow Museum's podcast. In this episode, we are looking at the links, if any, between Glasgow's Tontine head sculptures and the links to the transatlantic slave trade. Joining me to discuss this, we have curator of Scottish history, Dr. Anthony Lewis. Now, we're talking about the St. Nicholas Garden, which is behind Province Lordship, the oldest house in Glasgow, which unfortunately is not open to the public right now because of the pandemic. In the garden behind Province Lordship is a garden, a herb garden known as the St. Nicholas Garden. And tucked into the archways of the cloister are some rather strange sculptures. And I'm hoping, Tony, that you can enlighten us about these sculptures. Now, I understand that they're called the Tontine Heads. Can you tell us why they're called the Tontine Heads? Aye, thanks, Harry. They're called the Tontine Heads because they used to belong to a building that was known as the Tontine Hotel. And the Tontine Hotel uh, was where the, down in the Trungate, uh, pretty much uh, where the Glasgow Life buildings used to be. Uh, if you know today, there's a music shop. Uh, sells guitars and whatnot. It's in that area, in that vicinity, and the head used to belong to the piazza or the archway before you entered the building, and they were keystones of that archway. And the building was called the Tontine Hotel from about 1782 until 1911 when the building burnt down. And remarkably, unfortunately for us, the, the only thing that seems to have survived the physical evidence of it are these heads. So when the heads um, were in the rubble of the fire, did the heads become part of the collection or did they end up somewhere else before they came to us? Great question, Harry. I think they must have gone somewhere else or I think actually they were incorporated in part of Fraser's warehouse building on Buchanan Street, you know, Fraser's today. And somehow or another they, they've ended up coming to Glasgow Museums, but at the moment, I can't recall exactly how, on another day, if I had, you know, my database in front of me, I'd, I'd get back to you on that one. And it's certainly uh, questions that I'd invite from the public so I can get, uh, get an answer to them if we want them. So the actual carved stone heads themselves, Tony, do you know anything um, about the, the sculptor, the, the person or persons who made? We do, we do. Um, there was a work team. If we go back to the original building, uh, which was not the Tontine Hotel. The original building that these heads belonged to was Glasgow Town Hall, the equivalent of the Georgian City Chambers, if you like. And the building was put up, uh, designed and built between the 1730s and the 1750s. Now you think of two big public buildings of that time. One is St Andrews in the Square, which you can still see today, which was the Town Council's new church. And the other is this town hall. So you've got uh, government represented in, in both buildings, government through the church, government through the town council. And the both buildings had similar teams of builders working on them. And the carvers uh, of the, the, the coat of arms at St Andrews in the Square is a guy called David Catian. And it's exactly the same man who's on the Tontine heads, usually, um, another guy associated with carving is a, the stonemason, Mungo Naismith, uh, as well. But David Catian is actually called a, a carver. And uh, between those two, uh, the, the people that are uh, usually associated with being the, the makers of these heads. I think that's extraordinary because I know St Andrew's building, and I'm sure 
many of the people listening to the podcast will know St Andrew's building and St Andrew's Square. It's a fabulous, fabulous so building. So it's the same team. Yeah. The, the architect or the, the, the designer uh, is a guy called Alan Dreadcorn, who's an important Glasgow um, carpenter or right, as we see in Scotland. And he, or he inherited a business from his dad, Robert. And there are parallels um, between what you see in the top line heads and other buildings in Glasgow, not just the town hall, but for example, in King Street back in the 1720s, if you go to our collection and look on our collection's navigator for David Small's work on King Street, it's reference number 937.n. Uh, you'll see McNair's building, and on McNair's building, you see exactly the same heads in the arches. And if that building um, dates to the 1720s, which it may do, this stylistic um, qualities to it that may date it, then what we have there is maybe Robert Dreckhorn's designs for the new building from the new street called King Street at the time. And that's quite a nice kind of contrast. So you shouldn't see the Tontine heads and that feature as being in isolation as other buildings in Glasgow that have that feature as well. Now, we're talking about the 18th century, Tony. And um, the 18th century, of course, it was key to Glasgow. A lot of money um, was flowing into Glasgow. Well, it wasn't really flowing into Glasgow, it was flowing into the coffers of private individuals and conglomerates. Um, so could you tell me why the 18th century is just so such an important time um, in Glasgow's history? Well, it's a period of physical expansion, uh, where the city actually grows in size. Uh, from the early 1700s, we usually associate uh, important buildings like the Shawfield Mansion. We talk about the Shawfield riots, the Moltak riots, which describe that building. And at that time, the Shawfield Mansion at the top of Queen Street uh, was in pretty much in isolation. It's outside the city. By the time we get to the end of the century, it's been totally absorbed with Mill Street and Queen Street and Jamaica Street. So there's a process of expansion. The normal we talk about expansion to the west, actually, if you go east, we've also got the development of Charlotte Street, we've got the, uh, the um, with Dale's estate around Glasgow Green, you've got the Gallagate. And if you look on some of the maps of the, of the city as well, like uh, Richardson's map of 1795, which you, for those listening, you can look up for yourselves on the National Library of Scotland's map uh, website, you'll see that Glasgow's petticoated by urban villas of the great and good who live just outside the city and will come in to their townhouses uh, or their offices to work. So the areas and era of expansion and physical development. And with that as well, there's a development of infrastructure within the city. You can go below the ground. You'll find uh, increasing water supplies, increases sanitation work. Not necessarily think of a system as we have today, but more a piecemeal reaction to people living in different streets that needed that kind of infrastructure. And also you've got the development of the clients. Uh, Glasgow had always had its port Glasgow since the 1600s, but then you've got the line dykes development in the 1760s and 1770s. You've got grooming oil coming into it. You've also got industries coming into the city, possibly the bottle works, but then you find other industries and factories being set up, more mills, and of course, in relation to you know Glasgow's famed sources of income, like tobacco and sugar, ever since the 1600s onwards, we've got um, the, the sugar houses of Glasgow. 
So we've got these links between Glasgow's development and the greater British Empire and transatlantic cargoes and commerce that are coming in. So let me just um, ask you there, Tony, mm. you spoke about transatlantic. Um, how important was um, transatlantic trade in the development, the physical, the, the, the money behind the development of the city? And where was that money coming from? What was the trades that were involved? Well, cash crops like tobacco and sugar, but we shouldn't forget the imports of Glasgow's uh, textile industry, so imports of indigo as dyes as well, and uh, cotton uh, as well, very important. Uh, so if you read, if you go up to the Metro Library one day, one rainy day in Glasgow, and you wanted to look through the um, the customs records the of of Glasgow for this period, you'll get all the cargoes listed of incoming shipping as they're checked by customs. Uh, so it, it, these kind of tobacco, sugar, indigo, cotton, um, cocoa, coffee, tea, they, they, they're all coming in and they're all high value. Uh, they can be sold on the process. Perfect. And of course, Glasgow becomes famous for being the, uh, the centre of the tobacco trade. And one of the plus points of course is the pride with its access and the quickest route to the Americas and back. Um, so we, we, we outperform major English port cities like Liverpool and Bristol. That's not to say we don't work with them, but we become like the centre of the British um, tobacco industry that we then be able to get tobacco and then move on throughout Europe. So how important was the Tontine building and all of this development? Who was frequenting Tontine building? Oh, well, Provost of Glasgow. It's an important building as a town hall of Glasgow. That's where decisions are made about the city's development. So the likes of your John Glasgow as a bailey, a senior magistrate, were going there. And his cronies like Archibald Ingram, uh, Archibald, uh, Andrew Cochran, Lord Provost. Uh, all the great street names. That, I was just about know, to say that. Your Cannons, your sound familiar? Your Cochran's, they, they, they're all represented within this building as major stakeholders within decision-making of Glasgow. Uh, so the Tontine heads represent the buildings where political and economic and social decisions are taken, as today's city changes is. So the Tontine heads, as, as we call them, the keystones, do we know who the keystones represent? Are they symbolic or do they represent any individuals? Where did your research got to at this stage, Tony? Well, I think we can break it down into groups. So for example, one group, uh, you could, you could interpret simple entertainments. Just simply visual entertainment, something that you're walking by. And Glasgow in the 1700s uh, isn't necessarily the city that we go today. Uh, the surrounding buildings aren't necessarily as grand as they are today. So uh, standard plain facades or you know, a four-storey tenement. And then you get a building like this, or you're living up the courses of Fiddler's Coast and Barnes Wine, and then you get building like It's a standard building. And living conditions are entirely different to what we know today. So that just an entertainment to look at and go, what's that? What's going on there? So the theatre masks that are there in, 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 in amongst the groups of comedy and tragedy show a, a form of entertainment, but it is an elite form of entertainment because not everyone's allowed into the theatre. In fact, Scotland in this period are fairly nervous about the whole concept of theatre at all and who should write it. And they usually find that they're edited and vetted by the church ministry. Yes, nothing yes. too salacious yes. or naughty yes. is said. And, so, not, and not on the Sabbath. And not on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And teeth will be provided. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we've got all of this 
And but also the comedy and tragedy have the links to classical educations. So people who would understand those uh, might have gone on a tour, or they might have gone to university. I mean, by tour, I mean a tour of Italy, yeah. and gone to your rooms and your hostias and forges and Bologna's and then come back uh, to, to Scotland, having done their grand Italian tours. So there's a form of elitism within even those kind of entertaining us. Then we've got another group of green men. Uh -huh. And the green men might represent this sense of evolution and evolving city, uh, a city that's thriving and growing and income coming in. In fact, in the, in the Mitchell Archive, there's a letter, I think, between the Luke brothers who were goldsmiths and uh, sugar refiners as well. Uh, we've got examples of their work in the Scottish identity and art gallery here, the coffee pots and sugar, sugar baskets and uh, and chocolate pots and the like. So the whole products that are related to, um, you know, the transatlantic slave and sugars and tobaccos and, uh, sorry, sugars and chocolates and coffees. And they refer to themselves as the green men of Glasgow. So these uh -huh. people who are thriving, these people who are doing well, and also the city uh, of, that, just as we were mentioning earlier, a developing, evolving city. So it's like an excuse for entrepreneurialism. So maybe people are looking at that and go, oh, they were doing really well, look, we're growing, we're green, we're great. And another group has these kind of cartoon faces, they're just generally odd. And you think, where did you get that from? I mean, the, an oddity is the fact that some of them carry moustaches. Uh -huh. And Glasgow Georgian portraits that we have in our collection don't show anybody of that period wearing a moustache. In fact, hardly any Georgian portrait of a bloke or a man in both of them, in the uh, in the uh, in this period of 1740, 1750, showed anybody with a beard or a moustache. So it's totally different from the 1600s. If you think of the, the great cavalier portraits, I mean, they always got their kind of beards and stuff. So it's you're wondering what is the source for that? Where's that come from? And I've had a go and scratch my head and thought, what could the connections be? And I've wondered whether it actually refers to again trade and development. And Glasgow, if you go to, uh, again, think about another rainy day and you've got, you know, what shall I do with myself? Go on Google and uh, Google Books and look at um, Gibson's History of Glasgow from 1737 and flick to the back and you get an index of imports and exports uh, of how much material is coming in and out of the city. And one of the places that Glasgow exports to, and there's not many places in the world that's free of the Glasgow collection, is Turkey. And if you go to um, cartoons of what they hope Turks look like in the event, um, is that they always moustache. So spices and the spice trades that are coming in to Glasgow, we know that they are coming in, uh, maybe through um, these kind of merchants that the Glaswegians knew. So, you know, this sells Glasgow as not just, you know, a place where the Buchanan's and England's and Glasgow's live, but also as a multicultural and uh, international city with trade more around the world's coming in and out. So with all this trade, do you think then there is a direct link uh, between the heads and Glasgow's um, role in transatlantic slavery? I do indeed. Because in that group of just entertaining fish where um, is one head which I would have to go to a panel in the garden, which looks like the fellow is wearing a feathered headdress. And when I went to find, it's a very big theme of SNAP with trade cards 
uh, of the time, what I found was that the images of um, of Americans, uh, First Nation or American Indians, uh, on tobacco cards of the time, or tobacco trading cards of the time, try and sell the idea of the, the quality of their tobacco coming directly from America and these people, and they're all wearing feather pendants. So I went down to the British Museum who have a fantastic collection of trade cards to flip through them for my game of snap, and I found these correlations between the two. So I think one of that particular head, uh, if you're a Glaswegian and coming in and out of the coffee houses and taverns where these trade cards used to be left to encourage you to buy their tobacco, uh, was very much of the moment and saying Glasgow was a tobacco city where tobacco merchants made the money. And that was a kind of a bit like using the advertising of the day. Uh, if you go down um, Union Street or Salted and Renfield Street sometimes you go and home on, uh, to, to, central, to Central Station, you see the big adverts used to be mm -hmm. out in the neon. It's exactly the same kind of idea, except the Carlton School in the 1740s. And this is Glasgow advertising that it sells tobacco, or celebrating the fact that it sells tobacco and it has tobacco merchants in it. So those links are so strong, Tony, but what you're saying is there is a, there is a link in one of the stones with um, a, a, a first person native yes. uh, American Indian yes. there, but there's no evidence of the people who we know were actually um, producing the tobacco, the slaves that were coming from the west coast of Africa. So they're hidden in there. Yeah. Again, that story is hidden, yeah. but um, there's a stereotype there yes. um, that's been projected. Yes. So what it sounds to me like um, the, the, the heads are subversive, they're caricatures, they remind a wee bit of what you're saying with like the, the, the function of like medieval gargoyles, um, different characters, different expressions. And the green man, of course, the green man is an ancient, ancient pre-Christian symbol and it's quite a subversive uh, uh, image as well. So is there anything else um, that you've uncovered about the stones that's really astonished you, Tony? Um. I think the more I've looked at Glasgow tobacco and Glasgow's links with uh, transatlantic slavery and enslaved people producing the crops from which these merchants made their money, is just how important the time hall was. And because these are, and because these are the only legacies of those buildings, these heads are more important because they represent um, institutional racism. They represent investment in slavery, belief in slavery as a way of making money. Um, that is a fact. And it's something I wish I'd said in panels uh, here in the Glasgow stories. I, I, I danced around the theme too much and called it international trade when it is in fact pure racism and slavery. And that is because there's a lot of interest um, in um, Glasgow's links with um, transatlantic slavery. And it's because we are now reinterpreting the past um, from the present. And as we know, we constantly reassess where we are and where we've come from in order to direct where we go from the future. So I'm really, and I'm sure a lot of um, listeners will be refreshed um, at the different perspectives we now have um, on what just looked like um, fancy carved keystones from the 18th century. And I think as a result of this podcast, we'll all look at those um, heads entirely differently. I'm really astonished 
um, and we'll certainly go back and have a look at the head displayed um, with the feathers and um, and real look at that again. And I'll look for the green man because the green man is such a subversive figure um, as well within within um, Christianity. Um, so thanks very much indeed for that um, a insight into where your research um, is leading. Is there any final points, Tony, you'd like to make yeah. about the heads? Yeah, it's not to look at them in isolation. It's to just as you've done today, Harry's putting into wider context and. For those of you with an interest in George and Glasgow, um, come and use our collections uh, to do more research. Just get in touch with us when we're back open and up and running or send an inquiry in that we can deal with. Because we're, we're always, always there to help um, for people to understand and access the collections better. The heads also correlate, I think, to head plaster heads, stucco heads that were made by the plasterer. Thomas Clayton uh, from the Drickhorn Mansion, um, which was torn down in the 1970s, but we have examples of that. Yeah. And he made um, these carts and molds of strange looking heads as well that, that fit inside Alan Drickhorn's building. Because Drickhorn would be the same guy who designed the building itself. And also, these heads fit into Clayton's work that he did at Blair Athel for the Duke of Athel, was in the 1750s. So don't see the top nine heads in isolation. Also thinking as um, just for the outside of buildings, but also they, they're interested in heads of the inside of buildings done by the same plaster who worked at St Andrews and also at uh, the Town Hall itself. So, so look at them. What this story could run uh -huh. So look at them as a cultural historian, exactly. a social historian, as well as an architectural yeah, historian. Right. Right. Absolutely. And the full, the full urban history. Mm. Um, the, 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 they're, they're not isolated, they're, 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 they're contextual. Thanks very much indeed, Tony. Well, we could talk all day, as me and Tony usually do, but that's all we have time for in this episode of the Glasgow Museums podcast. If you've enjoyed it and want to hear more, you can find more episodes available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud too. Just look for Glasgow Museums. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.